Thanks for pressing play. Picture yourself on the occasion of your 200th birthday. You wake up in your hermetically sealed, temperature and oxygen optimized bedroom. You have slept the precise amount of time your body requires. While you slept, nanobots in your bloodstream identified injuries, made repairs, and delivered nutrients, vitamins, and medicines via microchips embedded throughout your body. A series of internal and external diagnostic devices ran a complete scan, compared the data to that of the entire global population, and made micro-adjustments to your daily molecular feed accordingly. All of your damaged tissues and cells were repaired so that you could wake up exactly as healthy as you were 150 years ago. That is the opening paragraph of the stunning new book by venture capitalist Survey Young. The book's called The Science and Technology of Growing Young, and he's our guest. This is a dialogue that just might change how you think about aging and maybe even life itself. Now, Sergey, as an investor, believes that entrepreneurs and startups are already creating the longevity and technology and category breakthroughs needed to design a new category of human, one that lives to 200 and maybe beyond. And um, that people in the very near future um, will have a health span well past 150, and that many of us living today um, will get to 150, and some of us will get to 120. We dig deep into what's happening in this new mega category of longevity, how we're getting close to saving almost everyone that gets a stage one cancer that is detected at stage one. What Sergey calls the near horizon and far horizon of longevity breakthroughs and how the conversion of the biological and the technological is already saving and extending lives. We also dig into the power of gene therapy, how we are already growing with replacement parts like livers and kidneys, and why major victories against cancer, diabetes, heart disease, and neurological diseases like uh, Alzheimer's are just around the corner. And that if all of us take the right actions today to live a more healthy life, when the near horizon starts over the next 10 years or so, we can all live to 100 and beyond. And Sergey tells us why he, as a man in his late 40s, thinks he will break the world record of 122 years old himself. Now, if you care about living a long, healthy, and happy life, I think you're going to find this a riveting dialogue. And pay special attention to Sergey's thoughts on how we're moving from the Internet of Things to what he calls the Internet of Bodies. You're listening to Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different. Neil Perbrog calls us the worst business podcast, and Podcast Magazine calls us the best business podcast. No matter what you call us, we are the podcast for people who care about real dialogues that make a difference. 
We're sponsored by my friends at uh, Oracle NetSuite. Visit netsuite.com slash different to learn how to build a legendary foundation for your business. That's netsuite.com slash different. And my friends at Splunk are the leaders in data to everything. Visit splunk.com slash D, the number two, the letter E, and learn how to bring data to everything. And while you're surfing around on the internet, why not visit lockhead.com and subscribe to Category Pirates? It's kind of like Harvard Business Review for and by pirates. Now, as Joey Ramone said, hey ho, let's go. Well, Sergey, I feel younger already just seeing you. <laughs> Hi Chris, likewise. <laughs> we all should feel that very soon. Well, I, uh, yes, as I've been learning. So first off, I just want to say to you, thank you for writing this legendary book. It really is a mind opener, an eye opener, a life opener. It's an incredible piece of work. Thank you. Thanks. Ruth. It, it was three years journey. And to tell you the truth, I really miss this time. So I'm, I'm already thinking about my second book. <laughs> I know how that feels. <laughs> it's addictive. Yeah, it is. Now, I have a thousand and one questions uh, and lots of jump off points into your incredible piece of work here. But I'm just curious, is there a particular place that you would like to start? Ooh, um, <laughs> you know, there's, there's a last chapter in this book called Morality of Immortality. And uh, when I submitted this chapter first to my publisher, they sent me back and said, Sergey, can we just exclude this chapter? So my question was, why? They said, this chapter deserves a separate book. So then my response was like, each chapter in Growing Young book deserves to be a separate book because human health, happiness, our desire to live longer is such a complex subject. So you can do like thousand books on the back of that. But having said all of that, morality of immortality and trying to understand, understand what we need to do to embrace the idea of longer living, is, is probably the most important topic for me because and it was always very shocking. When you do a poll, depending on the country, 60 to 80% of people say no to life extension. And I was always surprised why. And what I learned is we have created the science and technology to extend our lives, but we haven't created life that we want to extend. Yes. And actually, it's something that, that comes through loudly in your book, uh, and you describe it in multiple ways, multiple times. But this idea of, you know, we've all had that experience of an older person in our life who we love dearly, who as they age, uh, experiences a decline, whether it's a mental decline, a physical decline, or both. And they need help, and they're a shadow of them for their former selves. And any of us who've ever loved somebody with Alzheimer's or dementia, uh, which of course I have, we experience this where they don't know who you are and so forth and so on. And so, yes, if you say to me, Hey, uh, you're going to get to some age and then you're going to turn into that. Uh, and then you're going to live for another hundred years. Um, yeah. <laughs> that doesn't sound appealing. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. We have this old you know, mindset, old mentality of what aging is, because when, when people hear about life extension, they people, when people, hear the term longevity, they kind of assume we're going to extend the last five years of their lives. Well, this is not the case. We're actually working on health span. 
not necessarily on lifespan. And what I want to do is to insert another 20 to 25 years right in the middle of your life cycle to give you more time on earth to be with your loved ones, to realize your dreams, to change your career, and to have kids from multiple generations. <laughs> well, it's interesting that you say that. I'm lucky enough to be uh, married into a wonderful Italian family. And the patriarch of the family, my father-in-law, is 90 years old. And his grandson has a two, two-and-a-half-year-old daughter. Mm-hmm. And um, his father, my, my father-in-law's father, bought the small farm, the two acre farm in San Jose that they still work, 1945. And so when we go there to pick peaches with Papa, it is not unusual for him to have his great granddaughter there at two years old. uh, And I'll put this in air quotes, helping. (laughs) I love it. Yeah. Look, I love kids. And I I think uh, we need more time to spend with them to share our wisdom and uh, also to give them more time to make mistakes and be there to support them. Well, and what a gift for grandchildren and great-grandchildren to experience their grandparents. I mean, in the case of my nephew, Jason, you know, he's in his early 30s. He's married to a spectacular woman. They're having a great life together. They've made this wonderful little baby. Mm -hmm. And so, and, and they very much look up to their grandfather. And, uh, and now they've given him a great granddaughter. And so it's an amazing thing to see five generations, in this case, working the same land. It is, it is. And actually, when people kind of hate the idea of virtual avatars, that's like the first use that I can imagine uh, where I would personally embrace the idea of, you know, becoming a virtual avatar, creating that. I miss my conversation with my uh, grandfather. He, he's been so instrumental. He's been so passionate about helping me to understand life better when I was really young. And um, he died 25 years ago, but I still miss our conversation. So if I can have an opportunity to spend like an hour with my uh, grandfather once a month uh, with his virtual avatar, I would definitely vote for that. So then, and that's actually my approach to like everything which we expect from far horizon of longevity, which is 25, 50 years from now. Uh, and I'm actually expecting with this with combination of excitement and fear in the same time, like many of us. I always try to think about the application of these new technologies, which sounds scary, but if you apply it in, with the right person at the right time, they're actually doing a lot of good things. So similar to Elon Musk and Neuralink, some people think is uh, is really against the human nature. But when I think about people with neurogenerative diseases suffering from that, if I can support them with a brain implant, with human brain computer integration technology, I think it's it's probably the best use and and the kindness use of this kind of technology in our case. Uh, yes, I understand that. And as somebody who has older people uh, in my life, and some of them have had procedures in the last handful of years where they were life-saving procedures, and when the doctor looks you in the eye and tells you that your loved one is going to have this life-saving procedure that he doesn't uh, make sound very uh, significant, and then he explains to you that, oh, and by the way, um, you know, six years ago or whatever, this technology did not exist. 
And you realize, and, and you make it very clear, um, and I want to get into the distinctions in the book, but there are things happening at such a rate that we right now have people who are pr- having procedures today to deal with situations that uh, e- even as recently as a year ago, we could not have dealt with and they would have otherwise died. I mean, the yeah. virus being the main one, of course, but but this is happening in lots of domains and you open us up. So maybe let's have a three chunk conversation if we could, sort of the way your book is organized. You sort of have what's going on now, which I found very surprising. And I consider myself a guy somewhat in the know, but you deeply educated me as to how far we are on on longevity technology. And then I love how you create the near horizon and the far horizon so that we can have a span without being specific to a, you know, it's going to happen on such and such a date in the future, but you help us sort of bucketize uh, what is in the near term, relative near term to relative long term. So maybe could we start with what are some of the things that are going on now, Sergey, that most of us are not aware of that are making big breakthroughs around uh, longevity and, as you say, living well for a long time? Yeah, great. So today, there's a number of things that we all need to be aware of, and we need to use in our, uh, I call it kind of health and happiness strategy, whatever your life plan is. One is we just need to realize we, and it's probably the first time through the evolution of humanity, when we can be like really preventive with some of the diseases, uh, which are super dangerous and we usually call them age-related, like cancer, heart disease, diabetes, etc. And it's interesting enough through my work in Longevity Vision Fund, what we realize is that if you approach disease in, in, in a preventative way, your cost of treating that is 10 to 20 times lower than addressing that in a reactive way, in symptomatic way, in emergency way. Well, that's amazing already. Well, it's just a lot of saving for you, for your family, and for our healthcare system. One. Two, recovery rates and the impact of the quality of your life after this disease and recovery from this disease is just amazing. So if you if you do early cancer diagnostic and it's stage one cancer, depending on the cancer type, your chances to recover is 93 100%. Sorry to interrupt you, Sergey. That, so if you have stage one cancer, regardless of the kind of cancer and, and your doctors catch it, you have a what percent chance of recovery? 93 to 100%. So, well, that's obviously for certain cancer types, for the main, main cancer types. But uh, if you do like, well, imagine like a colon cancer. If this is stage four cancer and you'd be like really late to... Um, recognize that and to the diagnostic of that while re- your recovery rates is anywhere between 20 to 30 percent and that's why for many decades cancer was a piece of that because with with the outdated technology that we all had in the last decade um like the only way for you to discover the cancer when it's manifest itself right now there's so many diagnostic tools that you can use to identify cancer at very early stage to go through the treatment and recover. So that's amazing. So you, we need to, like the most important day of your life every year, at least of my life every year, is the date of my annual healthcare checkup, okay? So that's that's like super important. The last I've done was July 8th, and it was in San Diego, California, in Human Longevity Center. 
And we went through, you know, my full body MRI. I've done a lot of diagnostic tests, zero cancer risks. My heart is working well. My mind is working well. And for for 49-year-old man, young man, sorry, for 49 years young man. A very handsome 49, I might say. (laughs) No, and you need to be healthy to work in longevity sector. Okay, so that's that's actually like a professional deformation that I have. You you just embrace everything healthy, like healthy eating, healthy living. So you need to look accordingly. So you're not a chain smoker. That's what you're telling me. <laughs> not at all. No, smoking like tobacco smoking is the most awful thing you can do to your lifespan. It's actually decrease your lifespan by 10 years. That's like the biggest factor uh, in terms of your oncology risk, etc. But coming back to, to your question. So number one is, is embracing uh, diagnostic tools that we have at the moment. Right now, yeah, there's so many things happening in this place. So we invested in a lot of companies who, who are now without any invasive procedure. You spending like a day in the hospital, just using it, your blood biomarkers. Can, can I identify a company like Freenom? from California can identify your risk of uh, colon cancer. And they now work, start to work with lung cancer. With, and, and there's so many different like a box packages that you can use now to do DIY diagnostic. And, and that would be as a supplement, in this case, to um, a colonoscopy? Or would that be in lieu of a colonoscopy? Uh, yeah. So um, I, I actually, before going this June in, uh, in San Diego, I called him up and I'm saying, guys, I haven't done colonoscopy for the last two years and I have to. And I always hated this procedure. Let, well, let's just not go this way why I hate this. But And they were like, well, Sergey, these days you don't need to do it. I was really amazed. Uh, you, you kind of know that technology is, is progressing and science is progressing, but not at this uh, speed. So what they told me, combination of full body MRI with Colaguard, this is your kind of fecal diagnostic box, gives you almost as precise picture of your uh, colon cancer risk as colonoscopy just a few years ago. Well, that's, that's a great news for me. And for many of us. So we need to watch out for any cost of it is um, five to 10 times lower than just going through colonoscopy procedure. So that's great. Well, let's, this is amazing thing about my work at Longevity Vision Fund. Wherever and whenever we invest in, the improvement against the current healthcare intervention or practice is 10 to 20, but not percent times. Well, that's amazing. And this is before we go into organ regeneration. We, we're going to cover that. So one is DIY diagnostics. So we need to embrace it. We need to use it, etc. And again, go through like checkup every year. Extremely important. Two is wearables. So we tend to think about our Fitbit or Apple Watch or whatever the um, uh, wearable device you're using. More like, well, this thing just help us to you know play the music, show the time, uh, count our steps. What What is happening with wearables? It's becoming our personalized healthcare devices. I'm, I'm always using Apple Watch as an example, but with the same success, you can go to Samsung Watch, you can use Fitbit or Whoop, uh, whatever the wearables you like. So what's, what's going to happen right now? It's Apple Watch can detect five different types of your heart problems. It can even, even detect when you 
accidentally fall down in the street and call your son or daughter or people who help you or ambulance for you automatically. I mean, you don't need to do it. And uh, it can do electrocardiogram. My good friend, uh, his, his MD, he's been called on a flight for five times uh, last year to help people who are having kind of health problems. He just used his Apple Watch to do electrocardiogram you know, on the flight. So he can, I just want to make sure I understand what you're saying. The uh, Apple Watch, which many of us viewed as a toy when it came out, a fun mm-hmm. toy, Dick Tracy, all the good stuff. Uh, today, your friend who's a doctor is doing an EKG yeah. to get a heart diagnosis on a patient in some kind of discomfort or pain or, 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 or yeah. emergency on the plane. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because like in, in just 10 years ago, you would need to land the plane to go with this person to the hospital and then apply EKG. Right now, it's just all done by Apple Watch or any other wearables with the same functionality and more to come. So I'm like, I'm speaking to you now and I'm full of sensors. So my glucose monitor is here. I don't know if you can see that. Yeah, it works for 14 days. I can. Yeah. Well, that's amazing. And so you just have that on your bicep or on your tricep for 14 days? Yeah. And it's monitoring your glucose. Yeah. Well, that's great. I was, I'm actually very healthy in terms of my ability to process that. But I literally started this experiment a couple of days ago. I was very happy with the outcome, but it's not the same positive picture for everyone. So if you can kind of use that and see the reaction of your body to the glucose, that's very important in terms of prevention of diabetes. And diabetes is one of the four killer monsters you know, four diseases that people, uh, it's like a main reasons for that after we turn 50, which is cancer, heart disease, diabetes, and neurogenerative diseases, the new, new class of diseases that we're just facing that we're trying to fight as well. So I'm wearing Aura Ring, and this is, this is my device to monitor my sleep because I kind of hate sleeping with a watch. It's always... Uh, a little bit more bright than I expect during the night. So that's not a wedding ring right there on your finger. No, it's not. Yeah, otherwise, my wife would kill me for wearing the black wedding ring. Um, so then... Uh, <laughs> I wondered if that meant something in particular, but I wasn't going to go there. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's okay. Um, so, well, well, this is great. So in every morning, I can take a look of uh, how many minutes and, and even hour plus some time. What was my deep sleep? What was my total amount of time I spend in the bed. And my rule is like eight hours in the bed, seven hours of sleep. After reading Matt Walker and his book, Why We Sleep, amazing book, by the way, about the importance of sleep, uh, I'm, I'm closely monitoring this. So second piece of advice in terms of what we can do now is just to make sure you have a wearable. And, and like watch out Apple, Google, Amazon. It's going to be one of the largest healthcare companies on earth simply because they're developing devices which would monitor like 90 to 95% of the data that you want to know about your health right now on an ongoing basis. So they're going to have a lot of data and it's very important. So what they need to add here is like your blood pressure monitor and your glucose monitor that I have now separately. And again, this is 90, 95% of things that you need to, to measure. So we can identify diseases much, much at much, much earlier stage, not at the time when the disease manifests itself 
And you need to be like really surgical about uh, attacking that. Or you need to spend 10 to 20 times more money and lose the quality and quantity of your life after the treatment. And so as an investor, what percentage of your time, focus, and of course money are you spending on things that are in this diagnostic area so that uh, the sooner we catch it, the more likelihood we improve or extend somebody's life? Yeah, so um, it's roughly 25 to 30% of our fund invested in what is available today. And it's it's just a lot of other exciting uh, stuff. Like we just invested in a company which builds um, affordable ultrasound devices. And as you know, Chris, the mission of my fund is to bring affordable and accessible version of longevity and healthcare to the world. And the cost of this device is somewhere around $2,000. This is 50, sorry, 50, 50 times cheaper than ultrasound device that we have in the hospital next door. And it's amazing. So it's it's the size of the smartphone. It transfers everything to the cloud. Then it's pre-analyzed by artificial intelligence. And then nurse or doctor, you know, have everything ready, even like certain advice or recommendations or things detected on your scans uh, before they're giving you advice. So that, this is just a few minutes of... Uh, your time to do this. So that's like 25 to 30% of our focus. But the most exciting thing for me is what is happening in the near horizon, which is, which is uh, five, 10, 15 years from now. These are the thing which is currently in development in the biotech companies or in the academic labs. I think it's, it's extremely exciting. It's transformational. Now, so let's go to the near horizon as you talk about it in the book. The, the one thing just before we go there as I was reading, is it the second to last chapter where you talk about what you should do today to make sure that you can extend your life and the diagnostics and the stop smoking and listen to your mother and all that good shit? Yeah, it's called bonus chapter. It's actually like the last chapter of the book. And it's uh, funny enough, it's uh, two times longer than any other chapter in this book. So I I think it's good 40 pages. And it's called um, Who Wants to Live Forever? Who Wants to Live Forever? Uh, kind of things. And it's, it is about your 10 longevity choices. So I would, and, and it's, it's always one third of the audience saying, Sergey, well, this is human avatars. Genetic engineering is great. What do I do now? Well, that's exactly, well, this is actually, I, I love this kind of question because I, I want people to change their lives today or tomorrow not in 10 years from, from now, waiting for longevity in appeal. So that's why I've developed this 10 longevity choices, like doing your annual checkups, making sure you're not smoking or you're just avoiding all the bad habits. They call it passive longevity. Third is about diet. Be as, as plant-based as possible, controlling the quality of your meat and fish and not taking sugar drinks. Fourth is about physical activity, like your 10,000 steps a day with your feedback from your wearable is super important. And it's a good foundation for you to uh, to add you know, different type of exercises that you like from stretching to heavy lifting, heavy weight lifting. And then fifth is peace of mind. is important of meditation, sleep, socialization, purpose of life. And actually I like the name of this uh, subtitle of, um, of this part called Think and Grow Young. I'm a big fan of psychological aspects of aging. As you know, Chris, my mantra every morning and every evening, I want to live 200 years in a 25 years old body. <laughs> I love that. So, so I look at that bonus chapter and the way I sort of synthesize it, and I think you essentially say it this way, if I remember, is 
by doing these things now, these good things, don't smoke and don't drink and all the stuff that, you know, your mother told you not to do, what we're essentially doing is we're trying to use uh, proven strategies today to extend our health and our quality of health in time for the near horizon technologies and science to meet us so that if we can, if we, if we're good to ourselves, then we'll get to this magic place where science is really kicking in. And so you, you made me think I'm now I'm trying to bridge this gap between where I am now and when the near term starts. Is that how you want us to think? Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. Uh, so Jim Mellon, one of the investors in uh, longevity uh, field, call it staying on longevity bridge. Well, just stay there for five, 10, 15 years. Enjoy your life. Be as healthy and as happy as possible. So then by the moment when near horizon technologies and, and pieces of science are available to all of us, you can your body and your mind is actually worth extending its resource. So that's important. Or Ray Kurzweil said, uh, it, it's about living long enough to live forever. That's such if a great want. quote. Yeah. Now, so... Um, so maybe take us to uh, the near horizon. Uh, what do we see in the next, you, you talk about the next roughly 30 years or so, if I'm remembering correctly, that the near horizon will start to kick in? Yes. So I, I do think that the, uh, the major changes will happen in the next 10 to 20 years. And when people, so we invest a lot in the near horizon, like 70% of our fund is actually in the near horizon. So this, again, is breakthroughs in science and technologies, which are going to be available to us starting in 10 years from now. So when people ask me, what are the most exciting things are happening there? I'm, I'm usually talking about three things. Think number, thing number one is, is about gene therapy and gene editing. This is, if you think about on reflection, if you think about what are the tools that we can use, if we will be able to modify our genetic code to influence 3,000 longevity-related genes, and, and we already know all of, uh, you know, all of this genetic uh, composition um, and genetic units, which are responsible, actually, for aging process in our body, uh, well, that would be great. Uh, we can actually redefine ourselves as a human. And uh, that's why I'm very excited. And like 20 years ago, we spent, well, it was 15 years and $3 billion to sequence human genome. Right now, it's just $200 and a few hours. This is, this is amazing. So our level of understanding and influence of that is uh, totally transformed. And then actually my belief in the field of gene editing and gene therapy, the biggest obstacles in 10, 20 years from now is not going to be science not going to be technology. It's going to be regulation and ethics. Would we allow ourselves to uh, modify our genetic code? But having said that, um, it's happening already. So, Sergey, I'm sorry if I could interrupt you. So, so let me make sure I understand. I remember years ago in the late 90s being at TED when it was still here in Monterey and seeing Craig Ventner um, and... Uh, uh, um, his first name was Enrique. He was the guy who Craig would get up and talk and guys yeah. like me would understand a third of what he said. And then yeah. this guy would get up and say, let me tell you what Craig just said. Anyway, <laughs> his name was, he wrote a book called as the future catches you. I think his first name was Enrique. Anyway, mm -hmm. I remember sitting there listening to these guys and sort of having the sort of aha that I think many of us had at that time, which is as soon as you realize that life is code, 
that when a tree drops an apple, that is essentially a line of code being executed that says when the apple gets to a certain level of development, I drop the apple. And that, yeah. that life is made up of four uh, letters. The minute you understand that, and of course, as somebody who grew up in software, I go to, well, wait a minute. So you just told me cancer, by way of example, yeah. is a bug in the code. And so I, I spent a, a huge part of my life in software yeah. quality. So yeah. if we can isolate the code, we fix the code, we recompile the code, uh, create a new piece of software, and then Bob's our uncle... Isn't that the pathway to curing disease? And I can remember sitting there at TED when everybody sort of is having this collective aha. Is that what we're talking about here? Yeah. So as Aubrey, I think the name of the guy is uh, Juan Enriquez. Um, he, he wrote the book. That's it. Better. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Back in, uh, I think it was 2005. So Greg Venter is actually one of the founders of the clinics that I use for uh, my annual medical checkups. But you don't need to go to this clinic. It's it's a pretty standard procedure. If you if you see in your doctor and saying, doctor, can I have as comprehensive checkup as, as possible to avoid the risk of heart disease and diabetes and cancer, they will be like super happy to help you. Because, because what it does actually is decrease the urgency and emergency of their work and it decreases your healthcare, healthcare bill substantially times. So uh, as Aubrey de Grey, the father of uh, biogerontologists says, um, we're changing our view on human body from biological one to engineering one. And that's, that's in line with what you just explained, Chris. And funny enough, if you look at centenarians, these are the people who were living on this planet for 100 years plus, like 70% of their uh, amazing longevity is predefined by their genetic composition. So that's like for average person like you and me, uh, our health and, and the length of our life is predefined by our genetic code, probably by like 30 or 40%. Well, that's, that's if you look at the different scientific studies, that's roughly where people end up with. So, so I just want to make sure I understand that, Sergey. Roughly 30 to 40% of our health and longevity is predefined by our genetic code. Yes, exactly. So then, uh, obviously, when you know people die within their average lifespan, which is 75 to 85 years, depending on the country today. So if someone lives through the 100, that means that he or she, well, it's actually she in uh, probably 80 to 85%, that means that she has particular great expression and combination of longevity genes. So that, that's really important for us to be able to influence our genetic uh, setup in a way that we help these uh, genes to express ourselves. And we have so many different technologies to, to switch on, switch off genes. I'm not even, or alter that, I'm not even going this way. Like every year or two, we have like a new invention in this, uh, in this field. And funny enough, I was just about to say, like 20 years ago, people were using gene editing and gene therapy for a handful of cases, literally. There was like number of people on earth with extremely rare diseases who would just die tomorrow without this dangerous experiment of uh, undertaking gene editing, gene therapy. Right now, uh, if you look at Moderna or you know, other uh, virus vaccines, they, it, this is gene therapy. They're just using viral vectors to influence that. Well, that's amazing. That's like few billions of people 
on earth. Let me make sure I just understood what you said, because uh, some of us drink a lot and didn't go to school. But um, <laughs> so is the C-19 vaccine in part gene therapy? Is that what you just said? So yeah, I, I'm, I don't know uh, well U.S. Uh, vaccine landscape, uh, but Moderna, and I'm pretty sure a lot of other vaccines is, is, a, is a product of gene therapy. They're using viral vectors to deliver uh, necessary substance for you to develop uh, antibodies. And, and stem cells directly, yes? Yeah, yeah, I mean, you can, or you can use like a stem cells interventions to influence uh, a lot of things. There's a number of uh, technologies there. Uh, but what I'm saying is all of these beautiful inventions are becoming available to us almost every day. Think about my colonoscopy story. It bothers me because I hated this procedure all the time, but I need it because as a man of, what, 49 years uh, old or young, you're, you're going into a really risky territory age-wise in terms of the colon cancer. So depending on the protocol, uh, colonoscopy is like you, you need to do it every two or five years. Well, what if you just done it and, in, and cancer develop itself in the next four and a half years? You're about to die by the time you get the next procedure. Right now, you can do a test every six months, and, and this is great. You're going to survive, and you have your quality of your life with your kids and grandkids. Uh, so that's amazing. So coming back to your question, Chris, number one, like my excitement number one is about gene editing and gene therapy. It is about our new fundamental ability to manage and to amend our genetic code for we can live longer, we can fight age-related diseases, we can avoid that. I mean, you still can die. You can be hit by a bus, but obviously it's completely different uh, risk profile rather than uh, just carrying the risk of understanding that you have stage four cancer one day in your life. And by the way, if this is driveless bus, your uh, chances to die is 10 times less. Because if you have in your driverless car experience, I was about to say if you drive it in driver's car, uh, it's your uh, death risk, mortality risk profile is 10 times lower than when it's, it's a human who is driving the car or the bus. What happens if you have a uh, 668 horsepower Shelby Cobra Mustang and you're, you think that uh, autonomous cars are from Satan? <laughs> I don't even know. That's uh, that's rare. Or <laughs> if you're Richard Branson, then you go to the space, right, with Virgin Galactic. So okay. So so number one in the near term is gene therapy of one sort or another. Yeah. And just help me sort of frame near term. You said it, uh, you know starting in the next ten years or so. And so what do you see in the near term horizon with gene therapy as it relates to some of those big killers, diabetes, cancer, etc. So well, let's let's just speak about heart disease for a while. So because and it's and it's important for me because I have high cholesterol level. This is where my longevity story started. I didn't want to, and same here. I can see that I didn't want to really take statins uh, at the age of forty three, and I thought I'll just need to experiment a little bit and see what else is available. So right now we have a gene therapy drug which you apply once every six months, and then decrease your level of cholesterol. I mean, we still need to check, like, is, it, is cholesterol good or bad for your health and whether you need to influence that. But uh, there's, there's major correlation, there's substantial correlation with your, between your 
high level of cholesterol and your risk of uh, heart disease and, and dying from heart disease. So that's, that's for sure how you need to influence that. That's like a second question. But we have a drug now that you can apply every six months and it lowers your cholesterol. So it doesn't, you, you don't need to take statins every day. So that's, that's already a huge improvement. So we're going to have more drugs, more vaccines who are responding and helping you to prevent and fight all these killer diseases. Like people talk about cancer, you know, uh, vaccine against cancer. Uh, I, I, we just seen a company who's developing the vaccines against Alzheimer's disease uh, or uh, gene therapy against neurogenerative diseases as well. So in 10 years time, they're still going to be pretty expensive. But like expiration uh, of their uh, IP protection period is, is 10 or 12 years. Right after that, it's all becoming generic. It's available for the whole world. And I love that. So let me make sure I understand. In the next, in the near horizon, 10 something years, 10, 12, 15, maybe 20 years, we're going to have gene therapy for cholesterol, which we already have now, but we're going to have it sort of in the mainstream. And we're going to start having breakthroughs in other of the major killers, whether it's diabetes, heart disease, cancer, as a result of being able to do things with genes. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I'm super optimistic about our ability to fight cancer. We're right in the middle of winning the victory against cancer. It's still very dangerous disease. Uh, and we still will lose a lot of people because of that. It's partly going to be solved by early diagnostic and partly going to be solved by gene therapies and our ability to address certain type of cancer on a genetic level, not trying to kind of to work with the symptoms of that. So let's just play you and me, because you and I are about the same vintage. I'm 53 mm -hmm. years old. And so let's say we take um, Sergey's advice and we stop doing the bad things and we take, we listen to what our mother said. And so we try to extend ourselves uh, best we can on our own. We do the good diagnostic things in addition, which you recommend and let's say, God forbid, that um, when you and I, so we do all those things, but you and I get to, I don't know, say 75, mm -hmm. and we get diagnosed, like a lot of men, with prostate cancer. Yeah. By the time you and I are 75, we'll be in the near horizon. Sort of share with me what might be possible uh, as it relates to, uh, you know, the typical cancers that kill women and men in the next mm -hmm. 15 to 20 years as it relates to gene therapy. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot of things that we knew. First of all, we would know that you have a prostate cancer much earlier than today. So just going into the composition of your blood and using artificial intelligence to run the correlation against the health data of, of you know hundreds of millions of people on the planet, you will be able to know that, well, this, yeah, this thing starts in your body. So that's one. Two, you can use number of gene therapy uh, and gene therapists to address that at really early stage. So it's almost going to be invisible for you and, and will not give you any burden to save your life from, from that. And if you like really late enough, we will by that time, and that's my kind of areas of second focus and second excitement as well, we're going to have amazing and huge organ regeneration uh, sector by that time. So you will be able to replace any organ in your body. I'm still not sure about heart and brain. Uh, these are the two most difficult organs to replace. 
uh, and that's it. So uh, that's uh, that's the opportunity for all of us. And then there's so many people today doing so many things to to build organ regeneration sector and industry all around the world. So those of us uh, like myself who uh, I- I- enjoy an IPA or a scotch or or several, when can I order my backup liver, Sergey? And can I download it from the cloud and print it on a three D <laughs> printer? Or ha- how's this going to go down? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Look, I mean, it's actually it's uh, it's pretty close. I think it's going to be like from five years from now. Obviously, we have. Uh, certain tools today to replace the liver. Hold on, I hate to interrupt you, but five years from now, we're going to be able to grow a liver? Yeah, so, well, it's it's actually happening this year in some of the labs. So what is happening is right now, liver transplantation is a huge problem. People wait for six, nine, 12 months for their donor liver or heart to arrive. Some people die because they couldn't really survive with what they have right now. I think the ratio of people who are like a donor livers to people who need that is one to 10. And this is like in the US, all over the world, it's even worse than that. So what is happening right now? And we just, two years ago, we invested in a company called Lygenesis. They, they based in Pittsburgh, amazing scientists, amazing entrepreneurs. What they do, they take donor liver. And by the way, actually, nature like what we, the organ trans- liver transportation procedure that we have today is very expensive. It it's six to eight hundred thousand dollars, and you need to wait a lot for that. You can die, and then your body switch on autoimmune reaction to the foreign liver because it's a foreign body. Well, it's foreign organ inside your body, so body rejects it with the whole immune system. It's very dangerous. And you need to take a lot of drugs to suppress your immune system, uh, which is the downside and, and the negative thing by itself. So what they take, they take donor liver. They split it in 50 to 70 pieces. So that's like small nucleus of donor liver. And they use very simple laparoscopic operation to put it inside your lymph node, somewhere which is below the belly. And in the course of three to six months, your body regrows the new liver it's almost like liver b which supports the function of your unfunctioning liver at the moment so that's and i when we invested they've just done uh, uh trials with you know with animals like mammals um i think it was monkeys dogs uh mice uh and they starting human trial fourth quarter 2021 and they just got FDA approval for human trial to start. So it's not sci-fi. This is exactly what they're going to be doing. So wait a minute. Hey, let me slow you down there, handsome. You just said the FDA just approved these guys at, they're called Light Genesis. Is that right? Light Genesis, yeah. To begin testing, to begin working with people to do this exact procedure where they take a 170th of a liver, they implant it in my lymph node. And yeah. while my current liver obviously is in my body, because I need that to live, mm-hmm. a new yeah. liver starts growing. And then once that new liver gets to viability, do they cut out my old liver or how does that no, work? No, no, no. It's, uh, they coexist, right? So, and, well, there's so, so many. So you can have two livers. Yes, you can. So does that mean for my 75th birthday, I get a new liver? <laughs> yeah. And you, you can have a lot of bourbon or, or scotch. Yeah. Yeah. Who knows uh, what's going to happen in 25 years from now? Yeah. Okay. I love it. <laughs> so, uh, you know, obviously we can be more, uh, we, okay, we can rediscover the life in uh, so many dimensions because our ability to replace our organs is going to be fundamentally different 
in uh, 10, 20 years from now. And so all, all the major organs, we'll put the heart and the brain over here for yeah. a second, but kidneys, um, uh, liver, um, uh, pancreas, yeah. Um, yeah. They, they, all they, of those. It's pipeline. Yeah, and then there's so many startups. And then I don't know whether they're going to be 3D, 3D printed from the biologic materials or they're going to be regrown by using uh, like uh, animal biomaterials uh, and pigs are the, mo- the like the closest to us in terms of the DNA composition and and their organs uh, feeds to us or they're going to be regrown in so- inside our lymph nodes like like Genesis way that we just discussed but it's obviously going to happen though you know that what what is the most exciting thing is that is this small organ called thymus which is right here in our chest. And um, it's actually responsible for the work of your immune system. And it worked pretty well until the age of 18, 20, 22. When we are young, can we supposed to be in the peak of our reproductive ability? So this is pretty, pretty and that's why kids, they, you know, whatever they do, they always, you know, life, uh, happy, full of uh, energy. And because uh, there's a mil- uh, you know, amazing ability to regrow. Um, even uh, a little bit of their skin, yeah, if it's damaged. So uh, what what has happened after you turn twenty or whatever, like twenty two, and whatever the numbers is, the thymus starts to shrink. So your immune system is actually decreasing its capacity and it's uh, the level of immune support that it can give to you. So they actually like one of their first programs after liver is um, working on the pancreas, but also working on thymus. Because if we can regrow the thymus, that means that it's just one of the amazing direction and, and avenues for us to take to live much, much longer in a very healthy state. And you see these things to be clear. You're still talking in the near horizon. You're not talking in the far horizon. Oh, yeah, yeah. So it's you're saying regrow a liver, now. regrow a thalamus, regrow um, uh, pancreas, kidneys, you know, which are all major components of, yeah. of causes of, of horrible deaths for, you know, many. Yeah. These things are all in the next 10 to 30-ish years? Yeah, 10 to 20 years. My Actually, my biggest worry, as I said, not the development of science or development of technology. It's our ability to implement and execute on what has been approved already. So if you go to the hospital next door, the version of medicine, of healthcare that you get in there is 17 years old. Imagine that, Chris. So we're just using inventions from, what, 20 years uh, from now there. Because the, and, and it's actually, I was just looking at the study. Well, that's the average period between something being approved for the use in the U.S. and something being massively uh, in use in the, in the healthcare system. 17 years. Is that because the American authorities are uh, laggers on adopting new technology, new therapies, or why is that? Yeah, so they've done already what they can do, right? They approved it for, for the use. Well, then, then as execution obstacles, because healthcare system is very conservative for the right reason, right? You don't want to uh, work on innovation you know, every six months. Uh, you still need to test and, and you need to, to teach and train doctors to use that. So there's this whole execution and training lag and gap that we need to face. And I, but I do think combination of artificial intelligence and human doctors is a, is a right combination. We're going to see 
a lot of this happening. So people think it's either artificial intelligence or human intelligence. I always say it's 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 complementary. It's not mutually exclusive. Like last two years, when I've done my full body MRI, my full body MRI was pre-analyzed by AI, and then I have a discussion with my radiologist, and 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 this is amazing. Like radiologists for early stage cancer, not for late stage. They they obviously super effective for the late stage cancer. For early stage cancer. Radiologists can detect 38% of the cases because they, it's just really small on the scans. But like artificial intelligence with combination of radiologists can detect early stage cancer in 98% of cases. Imagine that. Well, it's just a completely different figure. And moreover, radiologists would take like on average 13 minutes to go through the scan. AI uh, needs four seconds. And I don't even know why I need four seconds to go there. It's probably just information transmission takes more time than actual artificial intelligence uh, uh, work. But then so our doctors will have more time to spend with us with uh, human beings. So that's just another positive effect of that. Well, so I want to make sure I'm clear on something. So you're saying your biggest concern in the near term is less on uh, the progression of science and technology to help us live longer and healthier, and more on the fact that from an ability to execute, from an ability for the system to accept the new approaches and new technologies, our local hospital, which here in Santa Cruz, we have a wonderful local hospital, small hospital, but wonderful local hospital. They are 17 years behind. Yeah, and that's unfortunate. And not because of the doctor. I mean, doctor is, is, is one of the most amazing profession you can have on, on earth. Uh, this whole bureaucracy, uh, it's all just lack of the processes and, and the tools and, and desire and funding and this whole complexity of each of issues that we need to face to break the barrier and, and, you know, make sure that we, as soon as something is invented, we can use it. But like, Look at the at the today most modern MRI machine producers. I don't want to use their name. I can update artificial intelligence algorithm every month or so. So that's that's already great. And what I'm always saying, the change in the healthcare will come not from old players doing new things. The change in healthcare will come from new players doing new things. It, see. No. <laughs> uh, thank play, you for bigger, play. play bigger. <laughs> Thanks to your book. Thank you for reading Play Bigger. I- yeah, yeah. So I was saying, like, yeah, I mean, if you if you use the terminology from your Play Bigger book, right? It's um, Amazon, Apple, Facebook, Microsoft, uh, a lot of different startups in in medical technology field. They just created the new category of digital health, and they're going to disrupt that. Yes. And what I also, as I'm reading your book, so uh, let me take a step back. We recently on Category Pirates published uh, a newsletter about how the generational difference between baby boomers and Gen uh, Xers, we put those together and call them native analogs, and millennials and uh, Gen Z, we put them together and call them native digitals. And the argument that we make, Sergey, is that these two generations, they're roughly the same size in the United States, roughly 140 million, if my memory is correct. And the differences between them are not the normal generational differences. Oh, their music sucks. Their ideas suck. It's, yes, we have that. Okay, boomer and all that shit. 
But what's really going on here is much more profound. Our, the argument we have made is that we now have a 140 million Americans who are a new category of human being. Their primary experience of life, their most important experience of life is a digital one. And the analog experience is an interruption or an additive experience to yeah. their primary, which is digital. Yeah. Well, yeah. What they call inefficient. Yeah. <laughs> interruption. Uh, yes. You know, and for them, buying a Picasso is stupid, but buying a $25 million Banksy NFT makes sense, right? Because if you're a digital person, digital art makes sense to you, by way of example. So if you accept that for a moment, when, as I read in your book, what I'm sitting here going is, wait a minute, holy shit. We actually now have two big things going on. We have the emergence of native digitals who are taking over the world. And the native analogs, there's two mega things going on. The Wall Street Journal has been writing about the uh, wealth distribution from what we call the native analogs to the native digitals. It's the largest wealth distribution in the history of humankind. And so now you're going to have wealthy native analogs who are in our native digitals who are inheriting money from native analog to continue to drive these innovations, further accelerating the development of this new category of human being that we call the native digital. As I'm reading your book, I'm going, well, wait a minute. What Sergey is really teaching us here is we have a new category of human being emerging as we think about ourselves more like a, a computer where we can swap out a hard drive and we can swap out a motherboard and we can add memory and we can add so forth and so on. And the shells might stay the same, but essentially we are going to engineer piece by piece the human experience. And that will then create a new category of human being. And so simultaneously we have native digitals whose life experience is different. And those of us who are in the native analog category, like you and I, we, as well as we age, will turn into a whole new category of yeah. uh, technologically engineered human being. Is that yeah. what's going on here, Sergey? Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, so we, we're going to be having humans uh, 2.0 pretty soon. Uh, that's one. As, as similar to what we call Internet of Things, it's going to be Internet of Bodies. We're going to be full of sensors. Right now, I'm, I'm looking exotic to you, right, with all my wearables, you know, straps, sensors as well. But we're going to be full of sensors pretty soon anyway, and we're all going to be interconnected. Well, moreover, if you think about the evolution of human life, there's a huge competition which will, will be going on between material existence and virtual existence as well. Uh, so re the reason we, we don't invest in, in the far horizon of longevity, because we're really struggling with understanding human avatars will they go robotic way or virtual way because we were looking at three human robotic uh human avatar companies two in california and one in japan uh, one in japan was actually built by professor susumi tachi the, the the man who invented human avatars concept back in 1980 uh, i've had an interview uh with him for the book and uh Robotic avatars and like re recreating ourselves in the material world is so inefficient. And uh, creating the virtual avatars of us is uh, is really easy. So we're going to, and I know a lot of uh, very famous people, specifically in the US, just half of them are working on their virtual avatars because uh, they don't need to repeat the same thing. You know, every day, the virtual avatar can handle 90, 98 to 99% of requests. 
and speaking, etc. It's actually my resolution for the next 12 months is actually one to find the country to implement national longevity program, to create longevity enabling environment in one of the countries on earth. My second resolution is start to build my virtual avatar. So I can, you know, I can be everywhere. I can present, I can spread the news about healthy longevity and finally change at least 1 billion lives by bringing them more healthy and, and happy years. You know, as I read this stuff in your book, I don't know if you remember this movie. This I have the mind of a child. Um, there's a, a movie with Michael Keaton called Multiplicity in it, where he clones himself. Mm -hmm. uh, you must watch it. It's funny. Oh, really? At least it was funny back then. It's called Multiplicity. It's with Michael mm -hmm. Keaton. Okay. And uh, the gal in the movie is Addie McDowell. And they mm -hmm. play a married couple. And he, like most modern people, is, you know, he's doing this, he's doing that. They have kids, they have jobs and all that. And he sort of says, you know, I wish I could clone myself. Anyway, before you know it, he he has three or four clones of himself. And the clones make a clone. And the clone ah. of the clones is not exactly all the... Anyway, it gets quite hysterical. But as, as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, well, shit, maybe I'm like Mike, Michael Keaton. I have, I, have, I have one avatar that spends time with my family yeah. and another avatar yeah. that spends time with my yeah. friends and yeah. a couple avatars that do work for me. And, and so the question is, what do I do if I have all these avatars running around the world living my life? Yeah, yeah I don't know. Look, it's... And again, it's... Uh, I don't know the answer. I don't even know whether we need to do it or not, okay? But I, I, it, my problem is that we're working on this beautiful science. We're working on this beautiful technology to create all of this. But no one is working on the ethical side of it, right? So we need to have a conversation, and it's global conversation, about how we want to see our life going forward. Because the technology is just developing at, this, at the speed, but like our ethics... The morality of, of this world is not supporting that, is not in line with that. This is my biggest problem. Well, and my friend um, Ray Wong, whose, whose new book just came out, um, Everybody Wants to Rule the World, one of the things that he says in the area of uh, digital privacy is, um, is this notion of ownership rights and that we have to own our own data. And so as you talk about these things, I had this aha. You know, in Play Bigger and in all of our work on category design, uh, we're writing more and more about how in order to become a category king company, you have to build this thing we call a data flywheel, right? And most, a lot of people have talked about this, but you're collecting all this information about your business, about your customers, about your market category. You're using AI, you're getting smarter, you're anticipatory, you know, things that many companies are now doing very well. The aha in your book for me was, oh, I got it. There's this mega health data flywheel in the cloud, and we are now nodes on that network. And by me contributing to my data, I'm improving your health and vice versa. Because one of the things we know about networks that are generating exponential data, which is exactly what you're talking about, is uh, as they grow exponentially, uh, we get deeper and deeper, deeper insights over larger and larger data sets. And when we throw ML and, and AI on top of that, we can now look for patterns. So when something shows up, because uh, anyway, my point is my contribution to the network contributes to the growth of the network exponentially. And as and, and so this is what what in technology, of course, we've called Metcalf's law for years. And so is that what you're trying to tell us is that yeah. as we contribute our own sensor data 
Not only are we getting healthcare data back about our prostate or our lung function or whatever the case may be, because we're allowing our data to be analyzed, that helps with everybody else's healthcare outcomes. And we're all just nodes in this massive data flywheel uh, healthcare network. Is that what's going on here, Sergey? Yeah, well, that's spot on. And that's exactly what's going to happen. And I do think we already uh, went through the trade off between the privacy. And, and availability of our data for uh, our own and global health as well. And obviously, I mean, the same thing happened with, with smartphones. They're so convenient that we forgot you know, all about privacy and our well, lack of desire to share important or sensitive things with that, right? Obviously, there's so many questions that we need to solve on the data, data privacy and uh, how we monitor and control and regulate that. But in a way, when people ask me, like, do I need to share my data? I, I think we already made this choice, right? We just need to regulate it. Uh, it it's in the already over. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so that's why I'm not talking about internet of body. I'm talking about internet of bodies, right? We all interconnected. We knew it all the time. But right now, it's going to be in technological terms. Yes. Now, another question I've been uh, very much wanting to ask you. So as I'm reading your book, I'm texting my doctor. I have an incredible doctor. Her name's Dr. Kathy Halston, and she's been my doctor for about 25 years, and I love everything about her. And so as I'm reading your book, I'm, I'm, I'm texting her photos of it. I'm telling her things that are in the book, and she's responding. And as soon as the book's available, I'm going to send her a copy. Anyway, one of the things she asked me to ask you and you could almost, I could almost feel her frustration in the text is approximately now, 50% of Americans who are eligible for the coronavirus vaccine are not accepting it. And so she says, well, ask Sergey, well, if half of Americans are rejecting, not life extending, life saving, we now know that at this moment in the United States of America, everybody who dies of C-19 yeah is a preventable death, and yet 50% of eligible Americans, roughly, are not taking it. So if there's such a rejection of this, how is it possible these, these life-extending technologies are going to take hold in a world where half the people don't even want to get protected from the virus? Yeah, um, very interesting thing uh, and very interesting question. I like that. Well, number one, um, the majority of outcome will will be available in the way of preventing early death, right? So it's not about you choosing to live longer. It's about you uh, choosing to not to die from cancer or not to die from heart disease or from neurogenerative diseases. So that's, that's great already. So, and, and, and that's a great first step. And we need to work on that in the next 10 to 20 years. So this will, what, bring the average lifespan or even health span on Earth to 100 years. So that's, that's, that's great. And then we'll sort everything else later on. Uh, but when people talk about immortality, uh, I'm always saying I'm not a big fan of immortality uh, anyway, but I wouldn't mind to live not 100, but 200 healthy and happy years on Earth. Um, so it's not going to be like you just wake up one day and then you decide whether you're going to be immortal or not. It's going to be serious of your life extension decisions. So, and one decision w would be like, would you want to avoid cancer or death from cancer? 
Well, the answer is probably yes. I mean, it's very painful. But, but let, and, if I could, let me interrupt you. Essentially, what we've said is, um, would you like not to die from coronavirus? And yeah. 50% of Americans have said, no, I would not like to die. I, I, so, yes, I'm going to, I'm happy dying of coronavirus. That's essentially what they've said yeah. by not taking the vaccine. Although, I would imagine if we polled those people, that's not what they think they said. But in point of fact, when you look at the data right now, uh, everybody who's dying in the United States is dying because they didn't get vaccinated. Yeah, yeah. Look, we need to learn our hard lessons. And unfortunately, this um, division on whether you're taking vaccine or not is, uh, is one of these lessons. So that's one. Two, well, let's be fair. Uh, these new vaccines uh, are a new kind of vaccines. And is, uh, look at our earlier discussion about this is, in fact, gene therapy. Right. So people are afraid of it. They don't know what's going to be the downside of that. I'm, I'm I, you know, I'm super optimistic guy. I was excited to read the news called Moderna vaccine has been developed in two days. And it's actually true. But like people reading this and say, like, oh, my, go- my goodness, this is health. Right. Uh, it couldn't be something great if this is developed in, in two days. I, I'm, you know, I'm a great believer in that, but not all of us. So it's going to be a certain separation of people. But what, what will happen with development of the new technology and new science, uh, it's going to be more and more evidence that it's, it's great. And the tools that we have today and will have in the future are actually super helpful to sustain the quality and, and increase the quantity of our life. So we're going to have more people sign up for that. But again, don't listen to me. I'm a super optimistic guy. So <laughs> you need to, you, you always need to find a balance here. So you're optimistic. You think that as people see this stuff play out over time, yeah. more and more people will wake up and realize, hey, wait a minute, I should get the vaccine. Hey, wait a minute, I should have the, the glucose clo- uh, probe yeah. On, yeah. My, uh, on my tricep monitoring myself. Yes, I, sh- I should have the Apple smartwatch making sure that my uh, my my heart is healthy, that my my butt is healthy, that my blood is healthy, et cetera, et cetera. That that as time goes on, this resistance, this rejection of science and technology, you see that dissipating. Yes, I think so. And this has happened in so many fields, like uh, surgical robots. You know, people like in in the in the early age of that, uh, it was probably ten, fifteen years ago. People hate the idea of uh, having the, their heart surgery uh, done by robot. Right now, I mean, they they just created a revolution in the heart surgery space. And actually, you know what? Doctors right now have more work to do because they can decrease the prices for these uh, surgeries. They're more reliable. They're more efficient. And uh, I just spoke to one of the hospitals. And when they started to do like to use robots for uh, heart surgeries, they had uh, they increased the number of patients they can ac- they can accept by a factor of two and a half three times. Imagine that. So and again we and we, uh, this is very typical for humans. We're kind of afraid of something, but then when we learn how it works, we start to embrace that. Yeah, th- that's a pattern that plays out over time. I mean, whenever I hear people say, "Oh, AI is going to uh, and robots are going to get rid of everybody's job," I just go back to, "Okay, um, let's look at the invention of the wheel." And back when the wheel was invented, there were people saying, yeah, but there's people who make their entire living dragging shit around. They're not going to have nothing to do anymore because we invented the wheel. I was like, okay, so like, come on. It's just, you can see how stupid it is when you put it in a historical context. 
Yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh, but there's an interesting thing you do bring up around the ethics of it. And is it is it the right thing to do to live? I mean, you're, you essentially in your book, if I remember right, you're saying if you're roughly 60 or younger and you do the right sort of things to take care of yourself, mm-hmm. you will make it to Horizon One. And if you make it to Horizon One, there's a very good chance you're going to make it to at least 100. So if you're 60 years old or younger, you're saying if you do a set of the right things, yeah. you make it to Horizon One, you're going to get to 100 or more. Is that right? Yeah, that's true. So even r- right now, with the average lifespan on Earth, uh, if you look at developed world, it's anywhere between 75 and like 85 years. You can add easily at 10, 20 years, uh, 10, 20 healthy and happy years just by going through the lifestyle changes and interventions which are available today. And this is what are the, the uh, only things that we discuss, like you know, checkups, avoiding bad habits, you know, being careful with your diet physical exercises, making sure you manage your cortisol level, you sleep well. I mean, this is almost imminent. But then there are some people say, well, that's egotistical that you should want to live to 100 or you should want to live to 150. Or, of course, yeah. you're, you're saying there will be 200-year-old humans. And so what do you think about the ethics of technology enabling 150 to, to a 200-year-old human? Uh, look, I, I think um, if you look at, well, 100 years ago, the average lifespan on Earth was somewhere around 35 years. Right now, it's doubled, right? at least for the developed world. So no one asks us about, well, whether we, we need to increase our lifespan by a factor of two. And the same thing will happen in the next 30, 50, 70 years. Okay, well, let me be transparent about this uh, whole thing. That's one. Two, after peaking in the year 2050, the population of Earth will start to decrease. Just whatever the mathematical model you look at, because of our extremely low reproduction rate, because we have a lot of alternatives rather than just working on reproduction for good or for bad uh, these days. So it's going to peak somewhere between 10 and 11 billion people, and then it's going to uh, go back again. China will population will decrease from 1.4 to uh, billion to 0.8 billion people. They will lose 600 million uh, people and population there. And the same is relevant for all the countries, with probably exception with with, uh, some African countries uh, as well. So it's not like we have an option whether we want to live longer or not. If you want to sustain demographic and want to make sure we are self-sustained as as, uh, humanity, uh, well, that's actually what is needed. So this is something I hope we'd get to because I've done a lot of reading about this. And, and I, I, The Atlantic has done some great reporting here. The New York Times, many very smart publications have been tracking this for a while. And I think it's still news to a lot of people that we are a decade or so away from the beginning of a population inversion. And to your point, China, the U.S., much of yep. Western uh, yep. Europe is already shrinking. And sort of the aha here is that the more healthy, the more educated, the more wealthy people get, the less children they typically have. Yeah. So if you take a big step back with me, you say, okay, wait a minute. We have less people, but we have more people living longer. We're going to have people living to 150 to 200 years of age. Mm-hmm. And not only do we have the emergence in the United States of 140 million uh, native digitals, we have the physical integration with the machines around our healthcare. And so 
It feels like to me when I take a big step back and I have a big shot of scotch and a, a little puff of Mary Jane, I go, holy shit, Sergey, we are right at the beginning of the end of the design of what a human being has been for thousands of years. Yeah. And we're at the very beginning of a new kind of human being, a native digital human being yeah. Yeah. and a human being who is... Um, uh, able to live forever because, or, or maybe not forever, but for a very long time yeah. because of this technology. And, and so this, this leads me to a question. When you have this aha, at least what I've had is there have been two things that are seminal in terms of the design of society pretty much worldwide. Number one is the generation behind us is going to be bigger than our generation so they can take care of us. The Ponzi scheme that mm -hmm. is, you know, yeah. uh, uh, the, the economy, the Ponzi scheme that is uh, the social security, et cetera, is about to come to an end. And in addition to that, um, and you talk about it, of course, in your book, one of the major creations of purpose in life, and maybe the, you'll tell me, is we are the only animal on the planet to the best of our knowledge, that knows we're going to die. And so the fact that we know we have limited time brings a level of meaning and urgency to our life that if we didn't know that. So my point is this, if the definition of what a human being is, is actually changing, there's a new category of human emerging, and the meaning we derive from knowing we're going to die at 70 or 80 or 100 goes away and we now know we're going to live to 150 200 or potentially for a very 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 long time what does all of this mean from an existential point of view and from frankly a societal design point of view yeah you uh, look it just a lot of implication like well about societal design think about marriage are you going to live with the same person for 200 years i actually wouldn't mind to live with my wife for 200 years but i'm probably an exception right uh, or what will happen with kids from you know different marriages, different generations? How are we going to sort uh, this out? Uh, but that's I, I do agree with what you. What the fuck I does Thanksgiving it, look like? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's going to be overwhelming. Like I was just doing back of envelope calculation, like how many people I need to invite for my hundred and fiftieth year's birthday party. Uh, immediate uh, family only and very close friends. 15,000 people, right? <laughs> well, you're a very popular guy. In my case, it'll uh, only be 15 people. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not sure about the age of 150. It's still going to be a lot. Uh, but like, I'm almost serious now. I think we tend to overestimate the importance of, of the time and ourselves uh, on, on where we are in, in the cycle of evolution on Earth, right? In the end of the day, evolution is uh, continuing. And if if this is go and if this goes in a way to reinventing humans, creating humans 2.0 or augmented humans or humans which are integrated, where where human intellect is integrated with uh, artificial intelligence as well, well, this can happen, right? So 200 years ago, to survive and to be number one, I would need to be like really physically fit man because the majority of work would be physical. Right now, you know, even with, uh, you know, I'm not the strongest man on earth, but I can be successful because of my 
intellectual capacity. Well, this has happened in what a uh, few centuries, and you know something similar will happen in uh, in hundred or two hundred years from now. But uh, we shouldn't be afraid. It, having so many billion people on the planet, like before we move the average, it's going to be decades, even centuries. Okay, like for me, I'm 49 years old. To see if I can break 122 years barrier, and this is the maximum lifespan we recorded on Earth, is going to be what another 70, almost 73 years. And do you think you can do that? Yeah, of course I can. Uh, but then, so you, know, you think you're going to live to longer than 122? Of course, yes. I'm I'm very optimistic about this whole thing, but. For all of us to check if this is true or not, we just need to live another 73 years. And like, imagine predicting how the world will look like in 73 years from now. It's like having this conversation right after World War II, uh, somewhere around 1950 in the US. Like, we would just be completely unaware of all the beautiful inventions. So, we, well, that's, that's my point. And that's probably a final point for, today's conversation however bright the future is and i'm i can promise you this is going to be more scientific and technological breakthroughs which will help us to live longer healthier and happier life as as they say in china the best day to plant a tree is today okay so we need to take back responsibility for our own health we outsource all these health related decisions to big pharma hospitals doctors, government, well, it's time to be uh, a peer in this conversation. And it's such an amazing journey to discover how our, our body works, how my work, how we can influence that through checkups, through latest medical technologies, wearables, great diet, physical exercises, sleep, meditation, sense of purpose. It's just an amazing change program. And I wanted to encourage you and all of us to start this journey. I love it. Sergey. is there anything else you want to touch on before we wrap? I, I really want to stay in touch with uh, you, Chris, with audience. Obviously, uh, order the book. Uh, it's amazing reading. I know I should say that, but uh, we already it done is. Like, yeah, it, is it is amazing reading. Yeah, we're already number one in preventive medicine category on Amazon. And this is kind of a few weeks before the uh, launch day. Uh, one Or go to sergeyyoung.com, sign up for our newsletters, stay in touch. In the next at least 73 years, it's going to be more exciting news. And we need to continue our conversations, Chris. Well, I would love to have a 73-year uh, long conversation with you, Sergey. Uh, I deeply appreciate your work. Uh, the book is very riveting, very, very provocative. Your personality comes out in the book, which is often not the case. So you've written, and you sort of say it up the fr at the front, you know, you've written a highly consumable book. Uh, some of us don't have PhDs. Yeah. Um, and so it's a, it's, a, it's a very readable book, very provocative book, and an incredibly uh, powerful uh, conversation for us to be having now, particularly as we, as we continue to wrestle with the, the, the C-19 crisis and continue to go forward. So, Sergey, I want to thank you. And I also want to tell you, uh, and that's why I'm so glad you were able to take a, a look at Play Bigger. You are a category designer. You are designing the category of, quote, longevity investor, right? When I saw your PR people sent the pitch to have you come on, I'm like, 
longevity investor. Like, oh, this guy's a category designer and he doesn't even know it. <laughs> yeah. But after reading Play Bigger, I know it. That's a great book. Well, thank you. And uh, I'm so excited you're doing this work and best of luck with the launch of the book. And uh, I hope we can chat again soon. Yeah, we will. Thank you, brother. And to everyone, stay healthy and happy. Well, there he is, the legendary Sergey Young. And I sure hope you enjoyed this real uh, different dialogue. If you did, please make sure that you share it with the people that you love and that you are subscribed to this podcast so that you continue to get these real different dialogues. Sergey's hot new book is called The Science and Technology of Growing Young, an insider's guide to the breakthroughs that will dramatically extend our lifespan and what we can do right now. Speaking of right now, it's time to get busy building the platform for your long-term success. And that's where NetSuite by Oracle comes in, the world's number one cloud business system. NetSuite is a complete system in the cloud, including finance, HR, inventory, and multi-channel commerce, and much more so that you can manage your business with precision. And uh, if now's the time to upgrade from QuickBooks, and if you're like a lot of uh, startups and smaller businesses that are growing, uh, you got a bunch of spreadsheet kung fu that you're doing, and you're trying to stitch all this legacy stuff together, enough with that. Legendary businesses have legendary foundations, and that's NetSuite from Oracle. Whether you're doing a million dollars a year or hundreds of millions of dollars, NetSuite gives you the visibility and control that you need to build a legendary business. Visit netsuite.com slash different for your free product tour. That's netsuite.com slash different. And in uncertain times, legendary organizations turn data into doing. And Splunk is the leader in data to everything, bringing data to every question, every decision, and every action. Learn how you can bring data to everything and be a digital first business at Splunk.com slash D2E. That's S-P-L-U-N-K.com slash D, the number two, and the letter E. All right, we would like to thank... Of course, uh, Sergey Young, his new book, It's a Smoker, The Science and Technology of Growing Young. Pick it up wherever you get legendary books. My friends at Atranet have been building legendary B2B websites in Silicon Valley for over 20 years. Check out atre.net today. My friends at Spiro.ai are the leaders in proactive relationship management using the power of AI to help close more business at spiro.ai. My friends at Interview Valet are the leaders in getting thought leaders on podcasts. So if you are a thought leader and you want to be on some leading podcasts, check out my friends at interviewvalet.com. My friends at bottleneck.online can help scale you with the power of a distant assistant. Check out bottleneck.online. And Malibu Milk is the leader in whole plant flax milk. And this is a hot category, and this is a tasty, tasty, tasty drink. Check out MalibuMilkWithAY.com today. All right, I need to remind you that this podcast is a sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. All rights do remain perturbed. If you're into marketing, don't forget to check out Lockhead on Marketing wherever you get oddcasts. Uh, I must warn you that this oddcast was created in a studio that does contain nuts, and it goes better with libations. And we were never tested on 150-year-olds. Uh, we're produced and edited by the GOAT, the greatest of all time, Jason DeFilippo. And you can check out his podcast, uh, Grumpy Old Geeks, Technical Awesomeness, and Lockhead.com uh, by uh, Jamie J and Sarah Knox. Why not go check out Lockhead.com? Don't forget about Category Pirates. Show notes by GM Simon. 
Don't forget to check out the movie, The Curious Case of Benjamin Britton, a uh, button, <laughs> Benjamin Britton, Benjamin Button. <laughs> Please take two podcast episodes and email us in the morning, blackhole at lockhead.com. Thank you, Candy Dandy. She keeps all the trains running on time. I love you, mom and dad. And hey, Colin, this odd cast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go to Greg Clark, former CEO of Symantec. Sorry, Greg, we just ran out of time for you. That's it. Thank you so much for investing part of your life with us. Please stay safe, stay legendary, and until we're together again, follow your different.